love it. A friendly crowd who mostly knows me. <laughs> so um, this is something new for me. Um, if you haven't noticed, I'm wearing, uh, wearing uh, cheaters most of the time. And I'm going to try and, and, because I've got some very specific things to say, I'm going to try and preach off of manuscripts, which means I've got everything written out here. Um, I've made it in 20-point type, and I'm keeping the, uh, the music stand here down in my waist. We'll see how well that works. <laughs> so Bruce asked me to uh, speak again on a topic uh, that is uh, quite near and dear to my heart. As I uh, shared when I, uh, when I spoke about, what was that, six, eight weeks ago? Um, in 2010, I left a, a rather well-paying IT position uh, to go back to school and become a physician assistant. When I explain that transition to people who don't know me at all, I tell them that at age 39, I liked my car, I loved my wife, so I decided to change my career and have a midlife crisis on my own terms. Um, so that's still pretty much the same, still love Terry, still drive the same Honda Civic, and uh, yeah, definitely change careers. But Joking aside, there's an, a, there's an aspect of growth in my Christian walk that prompted that change. This morning, I'm sharing with you some of the thinking that led to that change, and um, I want to be upfront. What I'm presenting to you today is Jonathan's interpretation, Jonathan's opinion on the scripture. I happen to think it's right and sufficiently uh, strong in that belief that it's worth sharing from the, the pulpit here, but like any time a, a new interpretation of scripture is advanced, a healthy helping of humility is appropriate. Hence this disclaimer. So when you think of Christian healthcare professionals, what do you think? Is it, uh, is it something that is required or encouraged, or is it just one reasonably good career option? Right? Amanda's talking about how she feels led to do that, and frankly, my experience is the vast majority of Christians who go into the healthcare field feel that way, right? And then there are a bunch of other folks who think, yeah, well, that's good for them. But uh, it's a leading question, and that's int intentional. It's certainly a great place for Christians to be. We get to do good for people, heal some of the hurts and the evil in the world. Ultimately, however... I believe that rationale is weaker than it should be. WDJD. Not WWJD, but WDJD. What did Jesus do? What would Jesus do is an excellent question about situations that Jesus never faced. What would Jesus do with a cell phone? What would Jesus do with his internet connection? What Jesus actually did is what tells us what he might have done on these new or uh, situations he never, he never encountered. When Jesus met sick people, he healed them. When we see delayed or deferred healing in the New Testament, Jesus has a special point to make. As a rule, Jesus healed with apologies to Geico, when you're the incarnate son of God, you heal people. It's what you do. <laughs> That's just Jesus being Jesus. Jesus uses his divine healing power to reverse the effects of the fall. But how do we get from Jesus healing people 
to us being called to be healers. It's actually, it's actually right here, kind of hidden in plain sight. Then Jesus came to them and said, you've heard this before, I suspect, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end, to the very end of the age. You see it in there? Now, let me explain it a bit. There are four verbs in the Great Commission, uh, and most of our English translations, NIV included, kind of skew how it comes out, right? Go is not the command. Make disciples is the command in the Great Commission. In fact, it would be, it would be more accurate to what Jesus, what's actually in the Greek of Matthew to say, as you are going. The going is assumed, not commanded. It's not like you have to leave where you started. But as you're going through your life, make disciples. So, see it there yet? <laughs> becoming a disciple of Christ involves becoming Christ-like in our actions. So what did Jesus do? He healed. He healed a lot. Sometimes, I'm afraid, we skip over the miraculous healings in the Gospels because we know we don't have that power to do those today. That doesn't mean it wasn't important for Jesus. We can't preach like Jesus did, but that doesn't stop us from trying. We can't live as perfect examples, but that doesn't stop us from showing the world a better way. We can't feed people like Jesus did, but that doesn't stop us from feeding the hungry. We can't miraculously speak to people in their own native tongues like the first Christians did at Pentecost, but that doesn't stop missions or Bible translations. Of all the things Jesus did that we don't do as a church, healing people is the most common. So let's look at the miracles of Jesus. Now, this is counting up um, all the miracles we read about in the New Testament. And sometimes it's kind, of a, it's kind of iffy to count exactly because sometimes the Gospels will have two very, very similar accounts. And the question is, is that two Gospels telling the same event slightly differently or Jesus doing the same thing, uh, a, a very, very similar thing twice, right? And so what do we see? Looking at all the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament and all four Gospels, we've got right about 70% 70, 70 are healing. All right, so that healing includes, what is it, uh, 18 physical healings, and I went ahead and wrote down, kind of gave you a little bit of a summary there, uh, nine exorcisms where unclean spirits are cast out, and three resurrections, not including Jesus' own. All right. Um, and then of the everything else that isn't physical healing, roughly half of those are, are food, right? Uh, either wine or fish or lots of food for lots of people. And you've got less than a handful where Jesus is just showing off, <laughs> right? 
So you're looking at 90% of Jesus' miracles are about meeting people's needs here on earth, and 75% of the total are, are healings of some sort or another. So, yeah, even on the way to the cross, the last miracle Jesus performed, healing Malchus's ear after Peter cut it off. So what happened after Jesus ascended? The apostles carried on healing right where Jesus left off, and unsurprisingly, the church contained, or excuse me, continued focusing on people's physical well-being with uh, reports of both ongoing miraculous healing as well as more mundane care of the sick. The men who came after the apostles, like Irenaeus, John Chrysostom, and Augustine, give us reports on occasional miraculous healings as well as organized efforts to minister to, minister to and pray for the sick. But we don't actually need to leave the New Testament to see this going on. The, James here connects prayer, worship, care for the sick, and confession, all in this one passage here in James 5. As modern thinkers, our natural inclination is to break all these apart and deal with them separately. But James makes it clear that these are all part of a holistic church life. When the rest of the world is looking at holistic medicine or integrated medicine, the church has yet to recapture its historic role as a healing provider. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So, observations from that passage. First, God is the ultimate healer. No, no, you don't understand. It's the eyesight. Actually, if anything... <laughs> you will understand in about 25 years, kiddo. To the extent that anyone is ever healed, it is because God's original design for a perfect creation shines through despite the fall, despite a sin-filled world leading to pain and death. When Jesus heals, that's direct divine intervention. When I use the best of science and medical knowledge to manage people's diseases, God authored the physical laws that allowed that, God enabled men and women to discover his universe and develop those cures, and God put me and that patient there together at the same time. God gets the credit. Second, sinning and sickness are connected. In some cases, the consequences of ignoring God's commands, uh, such as for sexual purity, have direct, easily understandable consequences. In others, the consequences of sin breed anxiety, Regret, fear, rage, sin cycles. Victims grow up to become victimizers, and generations live 
and die suffering abuse, substance abuse, child abuse, and similar sins. I wrote this in 2014 towards the end of my second year in PA practice. This week I sent a young lady to acupuncture. I probably should have prayed with her, cried with her, and told her that God loves her. I feel conflicted when I'm li- what I'm licensed to do is at odds with what I'm commissioned to do. When is abdominal pain not abdominal pain? Medicine calls it somatization disorder, the body acting out emotional pain in physical ways. People who suffer from it often undergo lots of pointless testing as medicine tries to find the scientific and logical explanation for what is really internal pain, grief, and victimization working its way to the surface. She was raised in a Christian environment. I'm not told this, but I deduce this from what she tells me. I'm relatively certain I'm right, but this young lady has a right to privacy, so I'll be vague on details. But since my practice has integrated medical records, glancing at her chart, I can see that she's both had an abortion and been talking with behavioral health about it ever since. She's been suicidal, but she tells me none of this. She just would like me to help her with abdominal pain. Oh, child of God, how I wish I could tell you that there is true forgiveness even for the intentional murder of your own unborn child. How I wish I could tell you to ignore the psychologist's advice to learn to forgive yourself and instead surrender to the one who can and will forgive you. Release from your own sin comes not from calling it not sin, but from admission of guilt, embracing the overwhelming love of Christ, that deep personal realization that before the beginning of the world, He chose to pay for your sins with his own humiliation, degradation, torture, and agonizing suffocation. Instead, I send her to a benignly irrelevant treatment modality. It won't hurt her, might help her, but it doesn't get to the heart of her problem. Too much of our medicine forgets that all sickness, all death has its roots in the fall. While God gives us our brains to work on cures for the various afflictions that permeate our world, he gives us Jesus to bring us back into relationship. To, make the hurtful name, to take the hurtful names on himself that we earned. He died as a murderer, yet was not one. So that a lost child who became one could be judged righteous. And not just in the hereafter, but by the community of redeemed sinners who should be welcoming her from afar. Mao's just one. Third, anointing with oil isn't just a religious ritual, but was actually current medicine in Jesus' day. While uh, biblical studies are great, the New Testament actually has everything you need to understand it built right in. So let's look at the, uh, at the middle of the, uh, the Good Samaritan here in, in Luke 10. Right? You know the, the beginning and the end of the story, right? All right? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came, upon the, where the man, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
So let's think about this. Oil is an emollient. Uh, it's a moisturizer. It's the best thing they have to do that in the first century. And, and wine, any guesses? It's got alcohol, it's an, anti, it's an antibacterial, right? So if the Good Samaritan came upon a guy beat up by robbers today, he'd be putting on Vaseline and Neosporin, all right? So James literally calls us as a church to use the best medical technology available in combination with prayer to address sick members. So what do I think about all this? What to do about it? We live in a world where health care was surrendered by the church to become its own entity. Up through the 19th and 20th centuries, the church owned health care. We don't anymore. We spun it off into parachurch organizations, and the net result of that is they've been corrupted by money and other influences, so that you have a lot of hospitals that bear very Christian-sounding names, but what goes on is anything often but true healing. <clears throat> it's going to be a difficult path. I believe that the church needs to start providing direct medical care to the needy. Not using ex external funding, not as part of the fee-for-service ecosystem, but as a ministry of Jesus Christ, just like how we give away food. Our resources may be limited, but we give what we can in his name. In doing so, I want to take back medicine from the biological reductionism that ignores persons and focuses on diseases. While Western medicine has paid lip service to biopsychosocial medicine, what we really need, what the world really needs is biopsychosocial spiritual healing. In providing healing, the church gets to re-engage the conversation about sexual and reproductive ethics, about the justice of resource allocation, about physician-assisted suicide, and who knows how many other topics. It's a big vision. We serve a big God who can do these things. Christians across America are coming to the same conclusions that healthcare started as a ministry of the Christian church and should be there until Christ returns. You have heard from Amanda, and we'll probably be hearing more um, throughout the weeks and months to come, from other people struggling in this area. One of the challenges is that right now, doing health care God's way can lead to persecution. So, pray for all of us Christian healthcare workers who are trying to be Jesus in a secular healthcare system. Pray that we get to offer hope in Christ to receptive patients and that we have the strength to do so when God leads us, knowing full well that could get us fired or professionally disciplined. Bruce, will you pray? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for hearing today from your word, uh, Jesus' role in healing. Thank you for the ministry that you've called the church to continue, that we would see men and women, boys and girls, our whole culture and society back, to, back underneath uh, your leadership and uh, that we would see 
healthcare, not just as an uh, external thing, but instead as a calling that you've placed on us. Father, thank you for Jonathan as your instrument today. I ask a special blessing on him as he kind of wakes us up, thinks, uh, helps us think differently about you and about uh, where we're at. We ask for your le leadership and your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>